On this week's According to Sources, my Merger Master podcast series continues with my interview with Westchester Capital. Roy Barron and Michael Shannon have been partners for over 25 years, and they sat down with me to discuss how they manage their $7 billion fund. We discuss portfolio management, position sizing, and even touch on a few of their current positions, including the controversial Aspen Insurance Company. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of December 9th, 2018. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. So I guess this is to either one of you. I just wanted to briefly Tell me about, uh, I know you guys have worked together for about 25 years now. Tell me about what led up to the partnership. What like uh, events led up in your life? What was the path? I was going to say what led up to the partnership was that we both ended up at the same place. Right. <laughs> well, my, my background is that I, I'm, I'm a former lawyer. I used to be a, uh, a prosecutor at the SEC's New York Regional Office. And I had gone to college at the University of Pennsylvania. And many of, of my classmates went into uh went into finance and, and began working on Wall Street. And I remained friends with them. And I would, you know, at card games, I, hear, I would hear guys talking about bids and asks and block trades and, and arbitrage. And, and one of my closest friends uh, went to work at the arb desk of, of a, a brokerage firm. And uh, it was really interesting and exciting for me to learn about that. And it was much more interesting to me than writing briefs and taking depositions. So um, he recommended that I read Guy Weezer Pratt's book, mm-hmm. which at, it wasn't really a book. It was more like a large pamphlet. And um, I, I stayed up to speed as best I could on the, in, on the industry and in the sector, et cetera. And through my friendship with, with, with guys that were, had gotten jobs and were working on Wall Street, um, one of them said to me, uh, why don't you come sit on my desk for a week or so and you can see what goes on. That way you could speak more intelligently in an interview. And as a result of doing that, I became friendly with one of his analysts who was friendly with the founder of Westchester Capital who happened to be hiring at the time. Got it. And so he said to me, um, would, you like to, would you like to interview? So I went to the interview with the guy and, he, and I told him, I said, I don't, I don't know anything. I have no experience doing this, but uh, I'm really interested in it. I'm fairly quantitative, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, I'll teach you what you need to know. So in 1994, I came over to Westchester Capital, which was founded by Fred Green, former portfolio strategist at Goldman Sachs, um, as an analyst. And so my, my legal background, I, I, uh, I have a master's in securities law, was helpful to the process of, of conducting merger arbitrage research. And so that was a good start and a good background to help me learn, learn the, uh, the skills. Got it. Got it. And Michael? Yeah, for, for me, it was, uh, you know, I grew up in a family. My dad actually worked at CBS for many years, so we were kind of in the entertainment world. And, you know, I, I often thought of, you know, what what else could I bring to the family, something different? And, you know, Wall Street was something that was interesting. And, you know, one of the things I loved about Wall Street was you were always dealing with different industries and uh, things changing, working on deals and that type of thing. And I, I, that was, you know, to me really attractive. So I went to J.P. Morgan and I was in their training program and for the first couple of years you move around which is really neat so right. you're in the oil and gas group then you're in the paper group the mining you know so you keep moving around you're learning but you know once you've kind of gone through that training program they want to place you in an area and 
you really they'd like you to stay in that area because you develop relationships and you know you get closer to the client maybe you get more deals and so I was kind of in the uh, oil and gas group for a period of time and that, that was interesting and then the uh, US bank uh, group needed there were a lot of bank deals at the time so it seemed like I was going to be working on basically US bank deals for my career right. and I was like you know this isn't exactly what you know, my vision of Wall Street is. All I'm doing is working with banks all the time. And so uh, there was an arbitrage uh, trader at the time, and he left the firm. And he left them with the portfolio at the time that was half bank deals. So the trading desk is like, we don't know what to do with these positions. Why don't we call the M&A department and say, hey, you, do you know anyone that knows these deals? Should we keep them on? Should we unwind them? So they asked me to go down there and basically look at the portfolio and give advice because we had worked on some of the deals. And uh, that was really my first, you know, uh, I guess, exposure to risk arb. And it wasn't just bank deals. There were all these other industries. I'm like, well, this is kind of cool. And, you know, the, the PMs and traders on the desk, you know, uh, the, their hours were much different than mine. They'd come in at 7. They'd be done at 5 or 6. As a banker, you're working, you know, 18-hour days. You're working every weekend. And I'm like, boy, you know, this is so much more attractive. It's a, a different industries. It's trading. And, you know, your hours aren't this crazy weekend schedule that we'd always have as bankers. So um, as this is going on, Barron's actually put out an ar article on the merger fund. And Kate may have even written it. She did. She re she referenced it. Yeah. It was called Fred and Bonnie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, I basically called up, I think, Roy answered the phone. We, you know, we hit it off, you know, on the phone. He's like, oh, yeah, you got to come up, meet the guys. We'd have, you know, a ball. Now, you guys grew up in the same town, correct? No, both on Long Island, though. Okay, so you didn't know each other growing up. No. Got no, it. no. So when I called the merger fund, you know, Roy answered, and he said, yeah, it's just like the three of us or four of us at the time. Why don't you so come I was, up? So I was working uh, out of when – I, when I first arrived, we were working out of Fred's house in Mount Kisco. Okay. And we were all set up in the basement, and there wasn't enough room for Fred, Bonnie, and myself in the same room. So I was working in, in a, a bedroom down the hall. Can you imagine? For roughly the, the first nine months or so until we moved into an office. Yeah. So uh, I came up, met, met uh, Fred and Bonnie and, and Roy, and uh, that was just a terrific opportunity. And so we were pretty small at the time. But, you know, so was the number of employees. And we're like, you know, what were we managing, like $100 million or $60 million? But, yeah, yeah, that was a good amount of money for such few people. And just the opportunity, you know, Roy being so much younger than Fred and Bonnie and myself, it's like you could kind of see there'd be a progression at some point if this all works out. Right. You know, for, you know. And this is the, like, the early 90s. This is mid-90s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, in the book, what's interesting is each chapter starts with a quote from the participants of the chapter. And you guys have a few, but one of them, uh, Roy, you mentioned your fondness for the industry because uh, you said deals usually happen in dynamic industries and there's usually an asset grab. And Michael, you said that it's often in industries that are struggling and it's like a survival instinct. So I guess I'll just ask, first of all, what industries do you think right now are seeing the dynamic asset grab and where do you think are seeing the survival grab? So let me say that both of those comments, although they sound as if they would conflict each, with each other are, are, are actually correct because there are multiple causes of, of merger trends. And dynamic industries, such as rapidly evolving industries, uh, often require, require M&A in order to expand, whether it's because, of, uh, because of, of impending competition or whether it's because of the need for capital 
or whether it's just because as companies get get larger, their products become more attractive to even larger even larger companies, almost right. like a big fish swallowing a smaller fish. So um, you'll you'll often see sectors and industries consolidating. You'll see software consolidating, healthcare consolidating, and then to Mike's point, which he can expand on. Uh, you, you see a lot in a lot of uh, consolidation in the energy space because yep. they've had such difficulty, particularly since 2014, when energy prices plummeted and oil went down to almost thirty dollars. Mm. Yeah, so we're seeing that now, right? The, the pretty volatile prices in the energy space, oil and gas, moving at, at pretty fast rates, and you see companies, you know, just looking to d- diversify so that they're not just primarily oil or they're not primarily gas. So we're seeing a fair amount of deals in that space right now. Right. Um, so those are kind of the, you know, more defensive or, you know, kind of protecting your portfolio type, you know, deals that we see. And I think in terms of, you know, uh, dynamic and, you know, kind of grabbing valuable assets, we certainly saw in the last year in the media space. Right. You know, you, you can make the case that that's a survival yeah. grab also. It could be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're CBS and Viacom, that's a survival grab. Yeah. Or with Discovery and Scripps, it's a survival grab. They're looking for grab. content and distribution, right? Or bundling. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we're stronger together that's than we right. are separate. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, um, I wanted to just talk about portfolio structure a little bit. So, in the book, you referenced that at that time, and I think this was June 2016, that you were looking at 200 deals worldwide, that they were on the radar at least. Out of those 200, roughly, I know it's been two years, how many do you think will make the portfolio? You know, it's funny. It usually seems about a third of the deals we look at, we invest in. That's not a rule that we have here. It just kind of seems to be on a risk-adjusted basis as we look at these deals. Uh, roughly a third of them might be attractive enough to be in the portfolio. And right. so, you know, at the time, I think we were looking at 210 trades and we were in roughly 70 of them. And I would say right now there might be, we might be tracking like 150, 160 trades, and we're in roughly 55 of them, something like that. Right? So take me through, Roy, like the due diligence part, meaning, um, you know, you walk in on Monday, IBM Red Hat's done. Go Take me through the checklist of what the process of what you guys do. Well, there are a number of ways to, to conduct merger arbitrage. <clears throat> you could have 10 ARBs sitting around a table and they'd all they'd have ten different portfolios, and and part of the reason is that their processes are different, and their priorities are different, and the goals for their portfolio are different. The goal for our portfolio is to create a a portfolio of attractive, risk-adjusted individual investments that together will provide absolute returns, positive absolute returns during most, if not all, market environments, and that's reflected by the fact that. Number one, the merger fund has had very few down years. It's been around for 31 years or so. It's had, I think, two down years. But, but moreover, and, and I think, by the way, that that's, that would be the case if somebody was practicing pure merger arbitrage. The, in, in theory, merger arbitrage consists of investing in companies that are involved in mergers and acquisitions and other types of corporate, significant corporate reorganizations with the goal of profiting from the successful completion of those transactions and only profiting from the successful completion of those transactions, not profiting from appreciation of the underlying securities. And if you build a diversified portfolio of these things, the deals that are are successfully completed will will make enough money to compensate you for the the few deals that are not successfully completed. Yeah. So, So it's our goal as a portfolio manager to invest in deals as a result of our research that we can we forecast will be successfully completed. 
Understood. But um, you guys are a fairly large fund now. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm saying that because uh, when you have a, a, a big deal or a small deal, I guess this applies more to the small deals, the liquidity, the major liquidity is on day one, mm -hmm. right? I'm assuming you guys have a certain checklist of things that you guys want to look at sure. on day one. Yeah. So does that prevent you from entering a trade the first day when the liquidity is there? No. no I mean, the first thing you're looking at for us primarily is the strategic rationale behind the, the deal. Does it make sense? You know, is it well thought out? Mm -hmm. uh, what's the reaction by the street, the analysts, the investors? What are they thinking about it? Uh, you know, how well do these companies know each other? Uh, then the next thing you want to look at is what is the potential risks. Primarily would be antitrust. Uh, you know, what approvals are needed? What is the risk of getting those approvals? So, you know, we, we talk to our antitrust counsel almost right away when the deals are announced just to make sure are we missing something? What roughly are his odds of it being completed? And then you kind of compare where is it trading in the marketplace? If it's trading pretty close to what we believe the probability of success of the deal being completed is, then it may not be that attractive. So if we believe there's 10% risk and it's trading in the marketplace on an implied basis at 90% probability of closing, that's not so attractive. But oftentimes, as, as you were saying, the first day there's so much liquidity that you get big mispricings right. the first day. So it could be trading at like 70 or 80 implied, yet it's probably north of 90% probability. So if we can get comfortable with those risks, uh, early on, then you know those are good opportunities to to set it early. So, so yeah. just to, to add to that, um, in addition to trying to assess whether the stock is efficiently priced in the market, um, we have to come up with our own forecast as to the probability of success of the transaction. And so, Mike Mike pointed out, and, and you referred to it as a checklist, but there are a certain number of things that you must find out such as, you know, Mike said, the strategic rationale, but we read the merger agreement for every deal that we invest in. Uh, my background is, as a securities lawyer and Mike's background as a former M&A banker help us in kind of um, intuiting what, what, what the positions of the parties are in, in negotiating the transaction. There are many buyers that will agree to, to very few termination provisions because they're so committed to the deal and they're not worried about, about antitrust risk Whereas the target company may be more worried about antitrust risk, and you may see those provisions reflected in the merger agreement. So it's a very important part of what we do, and that's what determines our what helps determine our forecast of the likelihood of success of the transaction. The antitrust review, as Mike pointed out, is 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 probably equally as important because that's the major cause of terminated transactions. Mm -hmm. We like strategically oriented transactions as opposed to financial deals like LBOs because there tends to be a much more of a long-term vision for the, for the combined company in a case like that. The, you saw in 2008 that many LBOs were actually terminated as the, financial, uh, as, as the financial crisis took hold and as it became more difficult to get financing. And you've also seen merger agreements evolve over time uh, in response to these types of events. After we saw Hurricane Katrina, we saw many, many deals contain a provision in the merger agreement that said that, that, um, that uh, acts, acts of nature are not grounds for termination, such as hurricanes, tornadoes, etc., earthquakes. After September 11th, we saw, we saw um, acts of terrorism are no longer grounds for termination of provisions. We're now seeing in, in transactions <coughs> another clause that we like, is a provision that says that if a company fails to meet uh, earnings estimates or street estimates or, or certain targets, that's not grounds for terminating the agreement either. 
we don't want we like agreements where there there are fewer loopholes for the buyer to walk away right we should, we're seeing that now in the aspen insurance deal i don't know if you guys are involved in that one saying that the liabilities reach i think it's 350 million that apollo can walk and now that's in the crosshairs because of the california fires exactly so we're doing a lot of research on whether or not they reach that threshold that threshold or not we w we like transactions where there is no such threshold where it doesn't there's nothing that says that over 350 the buyer can walk but in this case it's there and we're trying to assess whether or not they'll reach that threshold. Our current assessment is that they will not. I read that you guys physically go and meet management teams in person when they're participating in the deal. Yes. We think that we've always thought that that was a differentiating factor for us. We meet, we don't just wait for them to come around on roadshows to, to, uh, to promote the deal. We actually go out and visit management, we'll visit customers, we'll visit competitors as well, and we'll speak with them. Uh, in an effort to kind of understand the dynamics of both uh, management's commitment to the deal, what competitors feel about about it, because they, they may be complaining to regulatory authorities. Um, and we also talk to customers because very often a, a large customer, a, a loss of a large customer can have effect on, an effect on the transaction. Right. So, Michael, have you ever went out, met management face-to-face, -face, come back to your office, and your view of the transaction had been completely changed? I wouldn't say completely changed. I, you know, oftentimes uh, I'm surprised at how well uh, the companies know each other and how uh, far along they are in their integration process. You may even see, you know, some of the employees like, you know, on site there, you know, and they're already exchanging ideas. And so it just gives you a better feel that these these two companies are almost married already. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's particular insight that you might get. Uh, a couple of times we've gotten the feel that the deal was maybe thrown together somewhat quickly. And, you know, you will leave sometimes thinking, not sure that was particularly well thought out. And so that doesn't mean that you'll take the deal off, but you, you know, you're, you want to make sure that they've talked to all their customers and they're comfortable with it. And it's, you know, you'll ask them the question. It's like, well, we haven't touched base with all of them. And, you know, they might have a top three or four customer that might not like this deal. And they haven't talked to them yet. And, you know, it's just something that you kind of keep in mind. You know, I remember one deal, it was the, the two advertising firms that were merging. And, you know, two of their big customers. Yeah. And it was, you know, the one guy's nice. got Coke and the other guy's got Pepsi. Right. And it's like this is a huge customer for either one of them. And there's no way Coke and Pepsi is going to have the same ad firm. No way. Right. So that's a significant part of revenue that's going to be gone. Now, you, you'd think they probably thought of that already, right? You know, if the analysts were coming out. They're like, I don't, I'm not, I'm putting the numbers together, and there's a lot of these competitors. I'm not sure this deal makes sense. And then also culturally, you know, there are two different management teams. And, you know, those, you know, those are some things that you become aware of. Once these guys get to know each other, they're going to like each other. And so... Um, but There's we, some, we, uh, we big egos in that business. As yeah, well. but it, I think also during the pendency of that deal, the acquiring firms' uh, operations and, and accounts were not doing as well as the target, and mm -hmm. so we, I think we actually were thinking we'd make money on a break. That you know the 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 one that we're long was actually doing better than the one that we were short. So if the deal broke, we'd probably make some money. So we actually had a modest position. Because when it did break, we made a little more. Will you guys ever just short a deal outright? Occasionally, but rarely. Okay. We, we will reverse a deal if we think it's 
it's unlikely that they will get regulatory approval or that there's some type of shareholder vote issue. I'll give you just one, one quick uh, war story about visiting companies. Mike and I went out to the West Coast to visit a company called Envision Technologies. They do the, uh, those stand-up airport scanners okay. the, and for security scanners. And so we went to visit the company, and we went to visit the buyer as well. And we walked into the office, and, and it was well-known. It was public information that, that integration was underway. And so we're, we're sitting with the head of, the, uh, head of corporate finance, and he, he points to the office next door to him and said, here, this is where the, our IR guy is going to be. He's coming over from the target company, and the guy's name was on the door already. Mm. So, you know, we, we like to see things like that. It's, it's, a, it's a good indication of, the, of the, the confidence in the deal happening. Right. They, they were uh, obviously needed regulatory approval, so we, they, we still needed that to happen. But when we see things like that, you kind of get an idea that the company's comfortable spending money uh, on something that they think an approval they they think is is likely to happen. Right. So just going back to Aspen, then we can and going back to the idea of you know weighing deal approvals. I mean, I, I'd have to reference it, but I mean, there's like two percent left in it. it. It's pretty tight. And let's say the liabilities you guys are referencing or predicting is two hundred fifty million, and the walk is three hundred fifty million, and no one really knows what the liabilities truly are. I, again, I'm not questioning the due diligence, but it's it's close. Um, and because it's 12 down and 50 cents up, uh, that seems like um, a, probability, a probability that wouldn't interest you. Uh, you know, it's, right now it's, it's priced pretty fairly. You know, I think it's trading roughly at 92 implied. That's not too far off where we are. Mm-hmm. So it's not nearly as attractive as it was. 92%. It's not nearly as attractive as it was uh, two weeks ago. Sure. So, um, but do you guys uh, trade around the position? I mean, when it gets to ninety-two and it's less attractive, will you start to sell some? We may not be buying more. Okay. But you know, if it, if it's you know within range, uh, if it starts to go much higher, then we'd probably be selling it. Right. You know, again, it's relative to what our forecasted likelihood of successful completion is. If it's trading at 92% likelihood of closing as implied by the stock price, and we think that, and, and I'm not saying that's the case here, but if we think that the, the likelihood is 98%, even though it's 50 cents up and 12 down, um, which, is, which is a little bit less than 92%, um, we still think that, we would still think that to be an attractive investment, which is mispriced in the market. Right. Right. I just was wondering how a fund of your size, if if they're able to be that nimble and even able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. I, 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 I These things are fairly. Liberal. I don't even okay. think we have one day of volume. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. So but, another one of the things that we look at is 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 trading volume. We uh, it's it's a consideration in sizing the position as well as selecting appropriate investments. If we if we can buy stock, even if there's a block available on the first day. But it's unlikely that, that we'd be able to sell it out in a reasonable amount of time if we were to change our mind, then that we would downgrade that in terms of the quality of the investment. Right. So then that goes back to the portfolio structure question where you have 70 positions. I'm assuming they're weighted differently. What's the biggest weighting any one position can get? We don't have a, <coughs> we don't have a firm rule as to that. The, the position size is going to vary depending upon the, the attractiveness of the investment. The attractiveness of the investment is, is not going to be determined just by how efficiently or inefficiently priced it is, but also whether or not um, we, we are confident in our forecast of a, of a high likelihood of closing. 
So we won't invest in a transaction that, that we think is 40% likely to close and it's trading 20% likelihood in the market. Mm-hmm. We would, however, we would if a, if a stock was trading 90% when we thought it was 95% likely to close. And we, we look at all of these investments through sort of the, the lens of risk-adjusted returns. There may be a bank deal that's offering a, a 6.5% rate of return with 6% downside. And we would compare that to, for example, a biotech deal that offers a 32% annualized rate of right. return with 60% downside. Clearly, you can make more money in the biotech deal, but on a risk-adjusted basis, the bank deal is, is, is more attractive. And so we, we, would, we would tend to select and size deals incorporating the risk-adjusted nature of the investment And also, well. you know, with an eye on the value at risk, you know, how much potentially could we lose yeah, given right. the downside? So, I mean, typically in a low interest rate environment, you, you know, for the most part, you wouldn't want to have more than 100 basis points, you know, VAR on, on any given position. A higher interest rate environment, maybe we'd have two, 200 basis points value at risk. So, right. you know, it's uh, a lot of it has to do with the downside and then coupled with, you know, what's our probability that the trade will be successful and okay. kind of, you know, weigh the two of those. I wanted to talk about, Michael, in 2004, you uh, went to D.E. Shaw for a bit. And in the book, you described it as an offer you couldn't refuse. Um, I guess for starters, uh, you said it was an interesting experience, but yet you left after around a year. Why did you leave? Well, in part, it was the, uh, you know, Roy and I, we were all, you know, still friends, myself and the firm. And there was going to be, you know, Fred was thinking of a transition. And, you know, Roy highlighted that he's thinking of maybe moving out to Arizona, you know, any thought of coming back and us, you know, doing something here and we could, you know, uh, have a nice smooth transition. So I had picked up a lot of things at, at, at D.E. Shaw and they were, you know, really bright guys, you know, and, and had a lot of fun with them. But, you know, just the thought of owning your own business with a friend and, you know, working with the people that you'd worked with so long, just I think for me it was just owning your own business was, you know, for me so attractive, you know, being your own boss. and Right. Running. But- so, I mean, well, then that's a whole separate question, which is uh, this: you guys run a mutual fund, and there's no question that for the managers, uh, it's more lucrative to run a hedge fund. So why not run one? Well, we do have a have a hedge fund that we manage alongside the merger fund, but the merger fund is a is a niche product, and was a an early mover in the liquid alternative space. At the time the merger fund started in 1989. It was the only publicly traded mutual fund that retail investors could buy that would give them exposure to what was typically a hedge fund strategy. Right. Well, I'm not. I'm not debating the merits of having a mutual fund that focuses on ARB. I'm debating the merits for you, as the manager. Well, for us, it's you know we have nearly four hundred thousand investors, and so the the money is is sticky money. I mm-hmm. think there's a real uh, pressure on fees, especially hedge fund fees. Uh, and you know, for us, it just it's it, it it's a much more stable business, right? Well, I think it's 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 easy to say why are you guys taking a fixed management fee when you can also take a a profit allocation or performance fee right. in in a hedge fund structure. But the answer is is that setting that aside, it's a good business model. You know, we we have as Mike pointed out, we have we have a decent. Um, a decent loyal investor base so it's it's stable assets and we get paid for for 
managing fun, money and a strategy that we that we enjoy every day coming into work to do. So it's a, it's a good business in itself. And there's there's some gates. I mean, it's very difficult to start up a mutual fund and grow the assets unless you're you know you're Fidelity or or Eaton Vance or somebody that's going to throw a lot of, a lot of of seed capital at it. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to start up a uh, a mutual fund in 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 any space. There there in addition to the startup costs, you have to you have to gather investors, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that this thing has grown on its own into a viable business model. Um, is is something that's attractive to us and that's an attractive business to be in. I saw that in 2014, you launched a separate dedicated fund for event-driven strategy. That's still operating. It is. Okay. So, and it it said that this included corporate spinoffs and litigation and and asset sales. Uh, I was hoping that we could talk about some, you know, recent corporate activity and some of the more controversial deals. And if you can't talk about them, you know, I'll, I'll understand as you as you stated earlier. Uh, so the first one we got United Technologies news this week. Uh, the deal Rockwell Collins closed. They announced the breakup. Is that something that you fi- you guys find compelling? It, it it is something that we would look at. Um, the the only problem that we we would have with a situation like that is uh, it's long dated. Right. So you know, it, typically we like to get involved. You know, if it's uh, you know on the outside, maybe you know, six to nine months, mm-hmm. because these things will kind of trade sideways until you get closer to the split, right. and then there's more of a value arbitrage at that time. You know, to get involved, um, you know, this early, if we did, we'd be pretty small in it, and that w- wouldn't be for the merger fund. That would be more for the event. Right. Well, that's why I'm asking. So, do you guys uh, will you traffic? in names that haven't inked something specific yet. So I'm talking about names like uh, Arconic or, uh, you know, a Tribune, something like that. We follow them. And in fact, we would have forecasts for them. But, you know, again, kind of back to, you know, we, we've got to be like 80% or higher that something's going to happen. Now, it, it does happen if a company has announced that they're in a process of doing something, that they're maybe for sale. Sometimes those have higher probabilities of success than deals that have been announced sure. that might have regulatory. And in those instances, we can get involved. But it's n- never speculating. The company would have had to announce that there was an offer made for it or they've put themselves up for sale and are having an auction. Right. Or they are, you know, an activist is involved and they've said, you know what, that's not such a bad idea. We may split up or, you know, we may convert to a C-Corp or something like that. But, um, you know, that would be, again, more for the event-driven fund and not the merger fund. Right. Um, so, you know, we have to be pretty high on the probability. I, I, I would say that we, we, we don't speculate as to future transactions. Um, if there is news or, as Mike pointed out, a company has announced that it, that is, it has formed a special committee or has received a, a, either a, a bear hug or some other type of hostile offer, we would then, we would then look at it. And it's true that there are times when a, a company receives a hostile bid, like if Oracle has, ma- has made several hostile approaches to companies, and they've never, Larry Ellison has, has never lost a bidding war. Mm-hmm. And so the probability of success of, of Oracle making a, a hostile, well-financed cash bid for a smaller competitor is very, very high. And if you compare that to a signed transaction of a small company that doesn't have financing, the deal is subject to financing, and the, the, the founder has his hand-picked board of directors, and there's a large activist who's against selling the company, you would have a deal where there is a signed merger agreement that we would put a very low probability of success on. 
and we compare that to a deal which has not been agreed to, such as the Oracle example that I, that I just gave you, we'd rather be in the Oracle deal. So we ha that, that's a circumstance where we would be in a deal prior to the signing of an agreement, uh, and even though we do not speculate. Right, but what about an example, let's say uh, a, a, an excellent activist like an Elliot gets in a name. <coughs> uh, we saw that in Athena Health, they, they kick out management, they make a quasi-bid with a letter. Uh, will you guys play in those? Dan Loeb has, has done that as well many sure. times. Sure. Uh, we would not, unless there is a a high probability path to a an event or a transaction. But isn't a high probability based on you know a history of of successful ones? Yeah, it's a factor yeah. we take into account. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. It has to you know it has to be a high probability. If just because Ellie announced they've taken a position doesn't create the level of confidence that we would require in making an investment. Mm, okay. So uh, I end each interview with five questions. So uh, question one, you know, I was listening to uh, Alec Baldwin has a podcast and he interviews all sorts of different people. And he had Ben and Jerry, the ice cream guys on, and they were talking about their partnership that they had with each other. And it wasn't as collaborative as I thought it would be. Um, you know, Ben is just in charge of making the flavors. That's all he does. And Jerry is just in charge of the operations of the, of the company. So you guys, as partners, um, I wanted to know, how do you resolve a conflict with each other? Do you uh, collaborate on everything? Do you have your own sort of silo? Do you, you know, Roy, do you? How does it work, the partnership? I think if we have, one of the things that, that's nice is when you're looking at 150 trades around the world, if one of us doesn't feel comfortable with it, we have no problem just moving on. There's, you know, I don't think either one of us are that married to a position or an idea that if we can't get the other person comfortable, let's just move on to the next deal. And right. so that that's generally how. You know, there must have been a time over 25 years where you guys must have strongly disagreed about something. We, we've kind of been on the same page, literally for, for you know for for decades now. We we very rarely we may disagree about small aspects of position sizing or maybe a, a, that whether it's we're ready to, to invest in a deal or not or whether we should take a position off because the risk has increased but other than that I can't think of a, of a major you know other than you know ha handicaps for golf matches right. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, okay I wanted to ask you uh, you know a lot of people have very ritualistic morning routines and I wanted to know from, you know, the moment you wake up in the morning to when you show up at this office, what's your morning routine look like? Prior to showing up at the office? Yeah, from the moment you wake up to the moment you sit in your seat. As with much of the buy side, we are flooded with emails every morning, so which is a good thing. I mean, I'm not complaining because there's a lot of very valuable research that we get from both boutiques as well as bulge bracket firms. And it's very helpful to us, uh, in addition to getting up to speed on the news, getting up to speed on any research developments as well. Mm -hmm. So we'll check to see what deals are, are in place. Um, we'll, we'll look at, we'll read the research. Mike and I uh, get on Bloomberg very early in the morning and, and we'll, we'll message each other in the morning before we even come in. Um, I usually get a workout in as well. And then, uh, and then we'll come into the office, we'll have a portfolio meeting in the morning and we'll decide what the plans are for the day. Right. What about yeah, you? Very similar. You know, I have uh, just off the bedroom an office with a Bloomberg, and you know, usually just the first thing you do is just check the overseas, you know, P and L, and see has there been any movement, movement, anything happening right. that we need to be aware of, and then it's just you know, get the kids up, get them off to school, 
you know, work out come in. And the whole time it's like you're going through the 30 emails, you know, right. here and there uh, discussing with, you know, the uh, Roy and I and the traders, is there anything to be done? Uh, and then we have a morning meeting and then we're off to go. So it's... I was asking just because, I mean, if you if you pick up any like a fast company or something like that. They, they're they constantly asking people, you know, what do you do? And someone will say, I write my gratitude list. I meditate for 15 minutes. I do this, I do that. So I was just wondering if maybe that was part of your routine. That's I should I was, start uh, meditating. <laughs> <laughs> um, if Okay, question three. If you could, Michael, I'll start with you. If you could invest your money in anyone else's fund besides yourself, who would it be? Um... It's really coming to mind, in all honesty. Roy? Appaloosa. Okay. Yeah. Any reason why? Besides just... Track record. Yeah. Track record. And certainly not because of his CNBC interviews. <laughs> Although, I mean, if you if you look at history and people who... Uh, it's not me saying this. People who get divorced and move to Miami and buy a football team, I would imagine their track record might go down. That's just speculation, though. Interesting thought. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Anyone come to mind for no, you, Michael? No, no, not really. No. Um, all right. Question three: If you had one piece of advice to give to someone in the industry, what would it be? In the industry? Yeah, right. Maybe someone either just starting out or someone that just wants to survive as long as you guys have. I, I would think the, the the biggest mistake I think I've seen over the years, especially in merger arbitrage, is the lack of diversification. Uh, you know, be humble. Anything can mm -hmm. happen to any deal. And so uh, there's been too many uh, either uh, plain ARBs that tried it or uh, call them, um, you know, broader event-driven uh, multi-strategy that will try to pick the best or the top four or five ARB trades mm -hmm. and, and try to operate a book that way. And it just doesn't work that way. Right. It has to be diversified. So that would be my right. advice. I would agree. Don't get overconfident in your assessments. I mean, if if there's some people that have blown up because they've just they've kind of they believed their own bullshit too much. I mean, there are a ton of people that were in NXPI, which we thought was was one of the one of the best opportunities to come along in years. There's no reason why the deal shouldn't have have been completed, and yet you had an external force, the Chinese government, come in and hold the deal up. And basically hold it up for so long that that the buyer decided to walk away. The positions were huge all across Wall Street, not just in merger arb investors, <clears throat> but a lot of a lot of the, the people that we speak to had personal positions in it. A lot of directional funds had positions in it, and now they're waiting for it to to trade back up to the value that everybody said it was worth before the deal broke. So it's got another twenty percent to go up for them to break even. Right. Okay. Last question, Roy. I'll start with you. Uh, you could have. Dinner with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Besides Mike Shannon? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a religious person. I'd love to have dinner with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? I, just because of the massive effect that he has had on humanity and mankind over thousands and thousands of years, I, 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 would, I would love to hear from him you know, and, and, and kind of get a feel or an experience of what it is that made him so special when he was alive. Mm. I don't know if Jesus would be a good dinner companion. I don't know. He'd probably be very would quiet. He, is he funny? 
<laughs> what about you, Michael? I'd say the same thing, in all honesty. That's Is that what right? I was thinking, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Both of you were thinking Jesus Christ? Yeah, yeah. Are you a churchgoer? I, I go to church, and I'm Catholic. I'm not over, you know, I'm not overly religious. But, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I, w- I would find that interesting. I'll tell you that yeah. for and context, I'm the last I'm Jewish. person, the last person said Larry David. So this is a far cry. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, guys, I really appreciate yeah. the time today, and uh, it was great meeting you. Good to oh, same here. Thanks for, thanks thanks so for much, talking Mike. to us. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. My thanks again to Roy Barron and Michael Shannon of Westchester Capital. On next week's podcast, I plan on touching on some new names in my own portfolio and digging deeper into Arconic, Zayo Group, and explore what sort of price tag can the hotel group Belmont fetch in its current auction. Again, I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio of Broom Street Capital, and this has been According to Sources for the week of December 9th, 2018, and I'll see you next week. 